Before we read the word this morning, I just would like to offer up a, a special word of thanks from Elisa and myself for the incredibly generous gift that you provided for us several Sundays ago, a gift of a, a trip to Israel, along with some of the other members of the church who will be joining us in March. That's a gift of about $10,000. And we understand that in times like this, there's no one who has extra money lying around, so you're choosing to give money to us in that way. It was a sacrifice on your part, and we are deeply grateful that you would choose to do that. Now, we have been blessed beyond measure to be ministering here for almost 20 years now. There's any way, of course, that we could repay the generosity of a gift like that or your ongoing grace to us, but we just simply desire to continue to minister and worship with you. That's the only way we could repay it, just continuing to pour out our lives back to you, and we are delighted and excited to do that together, so thank you. Please, if you would, open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and stand with me, uh, and we'll read verses 1 through 18. Uh, we will prayerfully make it through 14 of those 18 verses, yet they kind of come as a whole, and the last portion of it we'll, we'll allude to this morning that we really can get our, wrap our mind around an argument the Apostle Paul is making concerning paying those who are in full-time ministry. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law also, does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nonetheless, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have not used all... I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For what was me if I do not preach the gospel? For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Please be seated. Now, I'm thinking about the nature of pastors who are being paid, or apostles in this case, or full-time Christian workers alluded to here. I did a little search on the internet to find out how much several or certain um, those who call themselves pastors in our world, how much they're worth, their net worth. I thought, well, let's, let's check this out, see. Well, you have Kenneth Copeland, who weighs in about $300 million net worth. He's the guy that was casting COVID out of the country about two years ago. Uh, you have David Oyepedo uh, from Nigeria. He, his net worth is about $150 million. Benny Hinn, relative lightweight compared to those guys, about $60 million. Chris Oyakelome, 
He's also from Nigeria, one of the poorest countries in the world. His net worth is about 50 million. Joel Osteen, about 40 million, then it drops off from there. Crefro Dollar, about 27 million. Rick Warren, 25 million. TD Jakes coming in at the bottom of that list at a mere 18 million, his net worth. Now, suffice it to say that I don't think the Lord Jesus or the Apostle Paul would have made it onto that list. Everything we need to convince us to flee from idolatry is found in the Bible. This is communicated to us both in principle and in example so that we might have everything necessary for life and godliness within our ungodly culture. One of the primary ways we flee from idolatry is to flee from the love of money, which is in direct opposition to the love of Christ and recognition of his complete provision for us for all that we truly need. So what we'll see this morning and really over the next several weeks is that believers must flee all forms of idolatry, especially the love of money, because this is both the command and example of the Apostle Paul as contained in the inspired and authoritative word of God. Believers must flee all forms of idolatry, especially the love of money, because this is both the command and example of the Apostle Paul as contained in the inspired and authoritative word of God. The scriptures contain everything we need for life and godliness, both principle and example. Now, in the chapters of 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the issue of idolatry, which has crept back or really exploded back or maybe never left the church. He's not talking to the world about their idols. Paul does that in Acts 17, where he speaks to the, the people at Athens and says, you have, these, you have these, you know, the, all these idols in your city and there's this unknown God. He's not talking to people who don't know the true God, as we've discussed. He's talking to people who know that there is only one God. He's talking to Christians. But we need to remember that if we're not careful, idolatry will continue to dominate our lives or at least be a part of it. That's what was happening in Corinth. They were actually going back to partake of the idol feast, really the sacrifices and ceremonies that they come out of, or at least they'd been saved out of the worship of that deity. And now it appears that those who said they had liberty in Christ were going back into those ceremonies and saying, hey, the food that's being eaten here is fine. It's not offered. There's no, there aren't any true deities, so we can eat this food without actually worshiping another god. And the apostle Paul is going to say, well, you're half right about that. You're right about the fact that the food, there's nothing wrong with the food. You can eat the food that's been sacrificed to an idol. He says in verse, eight, verse 5 of, of 1 Corinthians 8, food does not commend us to God. Right? If we eat it, we're not the better off. If we, if we don't eat it, we're not the better off. If we eat it, we're not worse. However, they were also half wrong because where they were pursuing the eating of that meat did matter. They were walking back into a worship service for an idol. And although there are no other gods but one, there are demons in this world who hold people in slavery underneath this demonic worship or the worship of other gods. So Paul says, in the exercise of your liberty, you are actually harming other believers who watch you do that. And then maybe they've left, they've stopped going to the temple sacrifices. They, they walk by one day, they see you, you know, popping back some idol meat in one of those sacrifices to one of the various deities, and they go... I want to do that because that's where my family is. That's where my, I'm going to get my business contact. That's where I'm going to be accepted. And so their consciences are strengthened, Paul says in, in chapter 8, too early. When they're strengthened about eating meat that they're not ready to eat, they still, even though they can walk past their conscience now and eat the meat, they're still not convinced it's not to an idol, right? Even though they know intellectually that that's true. And then they're going back to the ceremonies and their conscience isn't even going off about going back to the ceremony now. 
And so they could even, Paul says, they could even come to ruin. That is, God might discipline them because they're now participating in that actual sacrificial service and then going to communion, that is the Lord's Supper, and saying, I can do both. In 1 Corinthians 11, we find that Paul is actually disciplining someone to death for doing that. So, but the Apostle Paul is saying, look, you need to be really careful in your understanding of idolatry, and combined with that, really a subset of that discussion, remember, is Christian liberty. It's not the primary issue in these three chapters, because they're often presented like that. This is all about Christian liberty. No, it's all about idolatry, and the fact that you could even exercise your so-called Christian liberty unto idolatry, and you could actually harm others. You do harm others in the process, and even more important, as we discussed last week, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 8 When you sin against a brother by improperly exercising your liberty, whether it's just to strengthen their conscience to something that's acceptable or to strengthen their conscience to this acceptable thing that also then was sinful in the exercise of it, either way, if you stumble a brother, you are accountable before God. You've sinned against Christ, which is the worst thing that any believer, of course, could ever consider doing, right? We would never consider that. How could we sin against the one who died for us, who loves us, the eternal God of the universe who became man, who sacrificed himself on our behalf. See, somehow we, we think, well, I would, I would never want to sin against Christ, and yet then we sin against one another and somehow think it's not the same thing. It is. Even in an area of the so-called exercise of your liberty, not some direct sin towards them, but something you think you can do or that you could actually do, but it's the wrong time and the wrong place. We need to be so much more careful. Our Savior is worth our holiness, right? And that is directly expressed in the way we treat one another. Do not say you love God, says James, and don't love your brother. So Paul is making this very clear. And early last week, we talked about the fact that it is necessary for us to exercise our liberty so carefully. And if it would cause any harm to anyone, we would give up the right to do that thing. The Corinthians are throwing down about their rights. We have the right to do this and the right to do this. We can exercise that authority to do this. Paul says, stop. The exercise of your right is not what is at issue. The love of Jesus is, and therefore the love of the brethren. And Paul says in verse 13, I'll abandon my rights. Anything that I could actually do, I'll abandon that. Say eating food. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. It's not hyperbole for Paul. Never again will I do it. If it causes my brother to stumble. Would that we had that kind of heightened conscience concerning the nature of our behavior towards other people, especially in our areas of so-called liberty. I mean, it's, it's amazing that people get so intense about the very things that Christ has freed them to do. Well, Apostle Paul's statement in chapter 9 then forms a response to what seems to be a challenge to his authority. Because you look at chapter 9, verse 1, so he gets into this big thing, I'll never eat meat again, and then Boom, chapter 9, verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Things like taking on a believing wife. We have the right to be paid. What is going on here? Well, it appears that the apostle Paul is continuing on his discussion of immorality or idolatry by addressing some further issues that the Corinthians had with him. Remember, he had written a letter. They had written back to him. He'd been with them. And in that letter, it appears that they're not simply asking him questions. They are coming against his apostolic authority to command them to do certain things. And this appears to be one of them. You cannot command us to stop this kind of idolatry. You don't have the authority to do it. We are as free as you. We have the same kind of authority that you do. They are coming against his apostolic authority, and now he's coming for them. Now, he's already done it before. 
saying, look, I'm an apostle. I'm your father in the Lord. Uh, you know, I'm the one. Should I come with a rod or should I come with a gracious heart? Here he's coming after them again. And he's coming in full polemical argumentative mode. This is lawyer mode. Look down in verse 3. It says, I am making a defense, an apologia. I'm coming for you. You say that I can't tell you to do this? I can. I'm an apostle. And actually, as we'll see, I deserve to be paid even though I'm going to choose not to be. Because it appears that what was happening is that because Paul was refusing to receive payment for this ministry in Corinth, they were saying, you're not worthy of being an apostle. Because you're not taking money, it must mean you don't have the giftedness. It must mean that no one would even pay you to do that. Because everyone else, all these philosophers, other people that were proclaiming the gospel, they're receiving money. And you have to remember the, the culture. Who you received money from was one of the primary ways that you showed how important you were. Patronage. Everything was built in the Roman world about who gave you money and who you received it from. There's nothing wrong with receiving money. That was a good thing. You would find the right person, they would give you money, and that would enable you, free you up to do what you wanted and give you authority and influence because some other powerful, influential person was giving to you. So they built their lives around who they were getting money from. All the philosophers, all of those who were going around with their rhetoric and their skills that Paul comes against in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, says, like, I didn't do any of that because I'm also not receiving the money they receive. But they were turning that back around on him and saying, well, if you don't receive that, you must not actually be worthy. You're not a real apostle. You're not taking any money. And so Paul's going to go after this argument in a very unusual way. You see, what Paul was doing in refusing that was in direct opposition to the pattern of the philosophers and religious teachers of his day. However, Paul is going to make it clear that he will not allow his freedom and authority to preach the unadulterated truth of the gospel to be tainted through financial dependence, which in this case, it would have been because of their view of finances, their view of a love of money. And so the apostle responds to their accusations of his unfittedness to apostleship in two ways. First, he's going to make a short appeal to the status of the Corinthian church as an apostolic construct. That is, they exist because of his apostolic work. So he's going to make an appeal to them. Of course, I'm an apostle because you are a real church. Secondly, he's going to make a longer appeal by defending his refusal to receive support in a very unusual way. And we'll get through a lot of that this morning. So let's jump right in. Again, I, as I've said, there is no chapter in, first, in the book of 1 Corinthians that doesn't have incredible amounts of both interesting and difficult things. Well, let's do our best this morning to walk our way through uh, really a chapter that's had a lot of misinterpretation and misunderstanding. First, Paul is going to make an appeal to his apostolic credentials, his right to tell them what to do. You cannot go back to those idol sacrifices and partake of communion and the Lord's Supper. You cannot do both. I'm telling you, you can't. Stop that idolatry. And they're firing back. We're free to do that. You can't tell us what to do. Paul says, I'm right. You're wrong. Here's why. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? I don't think... Am I not free is referring directly to his freedom of conscience. He's going to go back to talking about that. He ties it directly to, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? He's coming back at them and saying, look, you're saying that I don't have the right to tell you what to do. Yes, I do. I'm free. In fact, I'm more free than you. I have the right to tell you these things because I'm an inspired apostle. You have to listen to what I say. In this case, my freedom trumps yours. Right? I'm free 
to preach and to teach these things. I'm free certainly to give up these, you know, these things I said I would give up. But again, I think he's, oh, he's working his way towards a new argument at that point and he'll work his way back towards freedom of conscience later. Because I have liberty to preach and to teach and to tell you how it is that you're supposed to be living the Christian life, both in what I say and by my example. And that's going to be really important. Right? He's going to appeal to his own example. Right? We won't see a lot of that this morning. That'll be next week and the week after. He says, look, this is what I did. But remember that Christianity is not only about what someone says, it is also about what they do. And the examples of Scripture, when portrayed to us as examples that we are supposed to follow, are also authoritative. The life of Jesus goes along with his teaching in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul's life he's going to appeal to over and over. You need to follow my pattern." as an apostolic pattern, as one who's serving and pleasing and honoring the Lord. So let us do away with this idea that it's only what is said in Christianity and not also what is done, and even in the Scriptures. When it's put into the Scriptures, this way of living from an apostle, from someone who's commended, and that is a pattern for us as well. We will see that. So Paul first makes this statement. So Paul's appeal to the Corinthians' status is first, and he makes a statement about his own qualifications by saying, I'm free, Am I not an apostle? Puts these in the negative, but the answer is, of course I am. Of course I'm free. Of course I'm an apostle. Of course I've seen the Lord. And of course, you're my ministry in the Lord. You're the fruit, essentially, of my ministry in the Lord, my work. What does he mean? Again, the freedom. I have the freedom to give you these instructions, to write this to you, to tell you what to do because I'm an apostle. And here, the Apostle Paul is referring to his commission by the risen Christ and is being given the message from the risen Christ. It's not simply the word messenger, right? That's what it means underneath, apostle. But this is speaking of what we call the big A apostles. That is those who had the authority to speak for Christ and were commissioned, not only the authority to speak for him, but were commissioned to be the authoritative messengers that laid the foundation of the early church. This is vital. There are only 12 of these, or were only. Actually, we say 13. Why? Because you have the 12 original disciples chosen by Jesus, minus Judas, plus Matthias chosen in Acts chapter 1, and then the apostle Paul added to that number in Acts chapter 9, and we'll allude to that in just a minute. So he says, I am an apostle, and really the testimony to his apostleship is having seen Jesus the Lord. The apostles had to have seen the risen Christ in order to be commissioned by him. Think about that. You can't be commissioned directly by the risen Christ if you haven't seen him. And so Paul says, look, I've seen Jesus the Lord, which, which just come, what comes along with that is since he is now taking that message, he's alluding to the fact that he was also given the commission by Christ. Right now, everyone who saw the Lord didn't have a commission from the Lord as a big A apostle. That's what we're saying here. Just seeing the Lord wasn't even sufficient. The Lord Jesus, after his resurrection, had to then give you personally the commission. You're an apostle. You're one who goes and speaks for me because I've given my message directly to you. Vital that the message came from Jesus. The commission was given by Jesus. And so, therefore, there are no more of these kind of apostles, period. Now, I know people claim to be seeing Jesus all the time. I know they claim to have been commissioned. They show up in people's, Jesus shows up in their mirror and tells them what they're supposed to do. And, and there's a whole, whole movement built on this in the, in the United States, the New Apostolic Reformation. It's not new. It's the, the, the nature of the, we would call it the radical Pentecostal movement, 
which is also rampant throughout the world, where you have apostles everywhere. I could have continued reading you my list of, of well-paid so-called pastors. There's a bunch of apostles on there. They put that in their name and they mean it. We are given authority by Christ to say and to do these things and they carry a special authority. And my answer to them would be, that is absolutely unscriptural. There are no more apostles. Why? You're saying, wait a minute, can't Jesus show up to somebody? Why can't he just do that? Why couldn't Jesus actually personally show up to someone and give them the gospel? Because the apostle Paul says, it does not happen any longer. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Speaking of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection. It says, then he appeared to James, who was the Lord's brother. We'll allude to that here in just a minute. Then to all the apostles, all right, the other disciples whom Jesus himself had chosen, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. There was one final apostle added, that's it, no more, last of all. Someone tells you they're an apostle, you say, you're wrong. And let me show you in scripture why. Someone says they have the authority of an apostle, they can speak authoritatively, you are wrong. There are no more those who, to whom the risen Christ appeared and who are commissioned by him were done after the apostle Paul. They all died after that. And there are none left. No authoritative words that you can then take and say, this is from God. Because with the apostles went the prophetic ministry. That's a, I've already discussed that. That's more for another time. But nonetheless, no more apostles. Paul is saying, on the basis of my apostolic authority, you must do what I say. Please hear me. No one else can tell you that. I cannot tell you that. This church cannot tell you that. No individual in this world can tell you on the basis of my authority, you have to do this. Only the scriptures, only the apostolic witness combined with the Old Testament witness, putting those together. That's it. They are your authority and nothing else. And if there's other authority, then you have a contradiction with the word of God. Even if it doesn't itself directly contradict what the Word of God says. You have someone who says, I tell you to do this thing. Now, the Apostle Paul can say that, and he is throwing down to say that, because what was happening is that in Corinth, they were saying, we're spiritual too. We have authority too. We're prophets too. We can tell you what to do. We don't have to do what you say, because God is speaking to us. He's going to deal with this in 1 Corinthians 14. No, no, no. If anyone thinks he's apostle or spiritual, let him know that what I say is the Lord's commandment, Paul will say. He's saying the same thing here. I have the right to tell you to stop this idolatry and to tell you the way in which to stop it because I am an apostle. I have that kind of authority. I'm free. I've seen the Lord. And he finishes out here. This is his proof. You're my work in the Lord. Look at verse 2 of chapter 9. If to others I'm not an apostle, Paul is in full polemic mode and in full, maybe sarcastic mode. I mean, he is coming hard. These arguments are hard and fast and strong and deep. It's like this just flows out of him. If others, whoever these others are, someone, some of them probably in the church in Corinth, but all of his detractors say, that's not a real apostle. He's not taking any money. He must be a fake. He's not impressive. He didn't come with words of, of, of rhetoric and special wisdom. It says, if to others I'm not an apostle, look back at your text, at least, that's why this is ironic, really sarcastic, at least I am to you. I mean, you ought to know that I'm an apostle. Why would you ever listen to somebody else? And why is that? Because you are my seal. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The fact that you exist 
The fact that you are believers is true conversion. It's why we know that in Corinth, he's speaking to mainly to those who are converted, real Christians. He says, that's, that's the seal of my apostleship. The apostles, their message and ministry was to lay the foundation for the early church in building churches, true conversions, and true churches started. That was the primary proof of their apostleship at that time. That people responded in the power of the Spirit of God to the powerful presentation of the gospel given through the apostles. He says, you're my seal. The authenticity of my apostolic word is the fact that you were converted. You see how this works? It's not just his word. It is also the power of the Spirit of God that came with it to bring conversion. That's why he was an apostle. You are my seal. Again, a seal speaks to all. MacArthur says, in ancient times, seals were used on containers of merchandise, letters, things to indicate the authenticity of what was inside to prevent the contents from being substituted or altered. The seal was the official representation of the authority of the one who sent the merchandise or letter. What was under the seal was guaranteed to be genuine. Paul says, look, how can you possibly question my apostleship? Here's what he's saying. If I'm not an apostle, you're not a church. If I'm not an apostle, you're not Christians. So I don't think you probably want to keep knocking around this idea that I'm not an apostle. You're my seal. You want to know if I'm an apostle? Look at yourselves. Look at the person sitting next to you. Remember he told them about all, those gift, all that giftedness they had? He wasn't, he wasn't blowing smoke about that. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 1. He says, look, all of the things that would happen in a church where people have been converted, the Spirit of God working, he says, all those things are true in you. They were immature. They were unspiritual. They were acting like unbelievers in some cases, but they were believers. It was a believing church. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 1. I thank my God always for you, for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That's a believer. Someone who's been given the grace of God in Christ is someone who's repented and believed. That only happens by God's grace. You don't do that on your own. That's not your own power. It goes on to say then that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ look at there, was confirmed in you. We spoke the truth of the gospel to you and the confirmation was real conversion. You were actually believers. The spiritual gifts, you weren't lacking any gift. It's a discussion for 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I've actually just been doing a paper on this, the idea that when the spirit of God comes to a church, he gives gifts and you can't stop him. If it's a real church, it has every gift that the spirit of God desires. Oh, you might not be using it fully. If you're not showing up, you're not using it at all. But you don't tell the Holy Spirit what gifts to give. He gives them, and you can't keep that from happening. This is the church where there's real conversions, therefore there's real giftedness, and therefore all the gifts that the Holy Spirit wants, he's providing in the church today. Again, that's coming as a later discussion, but every gift that he desires for the church to have is showing up in churches, our church, and all true churches. It's showing up there. He says, look, you've been given all these blessings and benefits. How can you possibly say that you're not, that I'm not an apostle? So cool it, right? Stop with this foolishness. But now he's, now he's really, that's the, that's the short part of his argument. Now he's going to come after them in a very unusual way. So you have to put on your seatbelts here. They're already on because we're moving fast, I know. Right, but here we go. We're going to try to get down through verse 14. He's going to make an argument here. This is a defense of his refusal to be supported by them. But what he's going to start with, and it seems really confusing to us, he's going to start with his right to be supported by them. He's going to prove without a doubt that an apostle has every right to be receiving money from those to whom he ministers. In fact, every 
minister of the gospel, he will say in verse 14. Right? So he's going to prove first that he deserves to receive their payment before he says, I'm not taking it. But both of those things prove his apostleship, that he deserves to have the money because he is the right kind of gospel minister, but also his giving up of it in their case demonstrates his worthiness to be paid. Fascinating. Because some of you are going to be thinking that I'm angling for a raise here, and I'm not. You just walked in, you're like, I thought Ron just said something, but we never talk about giving. We're going to have a whole thing about how you give to full-time ministers. What are you looking at? What are you doing here? Well, I'm preaching the next verse, remember. Right? If you've been with us, I haven't skipped here for today. But this is going to take a little bit. Uh, somebody said, how can you preach that with a straight face? Because this is all about you, right? You're a full-time minister of the gospel. I'm one of the, those at the church who's paid in a full-time way. Well, I can do this unabashedly because that's what the text says, not because of anything in me. So here we go. This is Paul's proof of his right to be supported. Again, Gordon Fee says, from their point of view, his activity would not have been the renunciation of assumed rights. Rather, he would have worked with his hands because he lacked those rights. They viewed it as, yeah, you're saying you're not receiving money and you are an apostle. We're saying because you're not receiving it, you're lying. You're not actually an apostle. Let's say you ran into someone at McDonald's. Imagine that that would happen to you. An employee. And you go, why are you working at McDonald's? He goes, oh, no. I'm not really a McDonald's employee, actually. I'm a rocket scientist. And you're like, excuse me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got hired by Elon Musk to you know, help run his rocket company. And I've stepped back from that for now. I'm kind of doing some freelance work uh, because I, you know, I just, it feels better to do that at this time. So I've got this job at McDonald's. But really, trust me, I'm a rocket scientist. And you'd be like, no. Show me Elon Musk's signature. Show me something. Well, the Apostle Paul, is they're accusing him of a similar thing. You say you're an apostle? You're not receiving the money. You're no rocket scientist. You're no apostle. And the Apostle Paul's responding back, what? I'll show you the signature, which is you. You're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord, and now I'm going to prove to you that I ought to be receiving money and then tell you why I'm not taking it. Okay, powerful, fascinating. If you see, you will, if you're a believer, you will see the Apostle Paul in heaven. I just ask you something. Don't argue with him. You will lose, right? Badly. The Corinthians are losing badly, but he is pouring it on. If you want to prove of why you should pay those who are full-time gospel ministers, you have it here, and it is irrefutable. Right? I grew up in a brethren church. The, the, uh, the brethren uh, idea is that you don't pay ministers because then they will be, they'll be greedy for money. Well, they often are. We'll talk about that. But it's not because you pay them. Right? Your paying them doesn't make them greedy for money. Their being greedy for money makes them misuse the payment you give them. So here we go. He's going to prove it. He starts with, and a bunch of principles here, the principle first of necessity. He's going to work his way through a series of arguments, beginning with just what you observe in life, then working his way to commandments given by God. Really, argument from the lesser to the greater, as it were. Say, look, here's the first defense of why you ought to pay someone who is working full-time for the gospel. Remember, that's what we're talking about. You're living your life by pouring out for the gospel, the preaching and teaching of the word of God, the establishment of a church, in this case, our church is... Well, here's the first one, the principle of necessity, verse 4. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Okay, here's, here's the issue. You work to do what? To eat. Now, I know in the United States, we work to party. We work to have all our pleasures. We work to get pile stuff on, more money, more house. If you live in most of the world, a lot of the world, you live to eat. You live to eat that day maybe, and the next day maybe not, so you get up the next morning to earn the money you need for that day. Have you forgotten that? Well, the Apostle Paul didn't. It's like, look, if we're going out preaching the gospel, 
And we're giving all of our time to do that. We are not going to have time to work, and we're going to die if you don't give us the money to eat. See how basic that is? The issue of necessity. And by the way, these things, these things are not particularly rocket science when you put them all together. You ought to pay someone who's giving all his energy to you because he'll give all his energy to you. You won't pay him. He can't eat, and he dies. Pretty basic, all right? The principle of necessity. Then we have next the principle of example. The principle of example. Right, what, what example? Well, the example of other gospel ministers who were getting money. Others that they knew of. And this was in the right way. Right? These were the true gospel ministers, not the charlatans, not the fakes who were running around in Corinth. Right? These are real gospel ministers who were apparently being paid in a full-time way and maybe even some whom those at Corinth were helping support. Right? So let's look at those. Who were they? And by the way, so many rabbit trails that we're not going to go on in this text. So many fascinating things we could dive into we just don't have time. Because look at this. It says, do we not have the right, it's almost like he takes another left turn, do we not have the right to bring along a believing wife? What? What does that have to do with support? We'll talk about it, All right? Even as, here we go, the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Wow. I mean, we could spend sermons on this. You got the Lord's brothers, you got Cephas, Peter, who's been given that initial commission, Acts 1 through 8, he helped start, launch the church. So the only point Paul is making about these guys, though, is that they're getting paid money. And in fact, some of them have wives that they're bringing along, and so they're getting paid so much money that the individual gospel worker and his wife, and by implication his family, are all being paid for. That's the idea. They're not bringing along their wives and their wives are working. Right? This is, again, that's almost an entirely 20th century concept. Again, the Lord gives full freedom for wives to work in ways that are appropriate to their oversight and love of their home. But in the first century, that was unheard of. You, didn't, you wouldn't have brought along a wife to a new city and sent her out to go work. He just laughed at you. All right? That's not how that worked. So they weren't bringing their wives along to make the support. They were bringing their wives with them to be healthy in their families. And all of them were being supported. Paul says, look, there's these other people bringing along not only themselves, but also their wives. You're supporting all of that. Me, not even married, of course then I would deserve to be supported. And it would actually be for less than that. That's the idea. And who's bringing them along, right? The Lord's brothers. Well, who are they? I thought the Lord didn't have brothers. I thought Mary didn't have any more children because that's what the Catholic Church teaches. They're wrong, right? Mark 6, 3. Is not this carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? It's just very basic. Yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. We know from, we know from the, the scriptural accounts that they originally, in the Gospels, they originally hated Jesus. Go on up to the festival. Right? So show yourself to people. We don't believe in you. But after he, appear, after he rose from the dead, what did he do? He appeared to them, right? James and the others, and they, they trusted him. They put faith and trust in Christ. Now they've gotten married, and they're going about preaching the gospel, and they're taking their wives, and they're being supported in a full-time way. Not only these brothers of the Lord, but also Cephas, right? And the rest of the apostles, by the way, notice there's a distinction here for full-time workers. So I don't think we can say only apostles. So therefore, you'd say, well, you can't support any more workers now because there's no more apostles. Right? Those who are working legitimately in a full-time capacity to preach the gospel, to give their lives, to bring the message of the truth, and, and I would say in this case, to, to build the foundation of the early church. In an ongoing way, I would say those whose work is, again, to share, preach, teach the gospel, and to support the kind of work that enables the gospel to go forward and churches to be established. So all these are also being paid. So that's the principle of example. 
right? Necessity, we got to eat. Example, other people are doing this, and it's right for them. That's the implication. Right? These other full-time Christian workers, and I think he brings these to bear because these would be the most obvious examples of those. Yeah, these, these guys are the real deal. The brothers of the Lord, real Christians. Cephas, one of the apostles, the other apostles. They all, yep, they deserve to get paid. Zero question there. So he brings the most, uh, most visible examples. Uh, by the way, very, very likely that Cephas had visited Corinth. We talked about that when we know that Peter, Cephas, is one of those who, around whom they were trying to get their um, other people to think they were impressive. You have Cephas and Paul. and So they were, he was one of the factional teachers. They had turned him into a factional teacher. Very likely he'd been there with his wife, very possibly, and they were very possibly even supporting him, the Corinthians. Well, that's the principle of example. Now we have the principle of wages, and this is fascinating, verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? It's a double negative. So look, is it only Barnabas and I that have to keep working? That's the idea. Everyone else gets to get paid full-time for doing this. They don't have to do outside work. Guys, working for the gospel is real work. Is this is not the physical hands-on labor that most work entailed then. Paul, we know again, and we'll talk more about it, was a tent maker. He sat in the market and he sewed tents together. It's like, is only Barnabas and I that have to keep working? If these things are true, if the apostles of the Lord and, and the, uh, the Lord's brother, brothers, the apostles, Cephas, if they all get to go around and don't have to work, is it only Barnabas and I that have to keep working? What's up with that? Of course not, because we also right, are able to have this full-time capacity work that we are doing. It's fascinating here. Barnabas is you know, one of Paul's first missionary journey companion. You might remember they, they had a sharp disagreement in which they... They went separate ways with Barnabas taking John Mark, where Paul is saying, look, he deserted us. He deserves a creed. We're not, I, don't, I don't want him anymore. And Paul took Silas, and yet Paul certainly still considers Barnabas what, his fellow laborer. The disagreement was over you know, missions policy. How, what are we going to do? How we live this out? But nonetheless, he still considered him. And we find out later that there seems, almost certainly seems to have been reconciliation directly, even working together again. But he says, look, Barnabas, my fellow missionary who was sent out by a church, do we have to keep working? Or can we, could we also, do we not also, the implication is, do we not also have the right to refrain from working? And then he just simply uses the example of getting paid for the work you do. Notice, very basic examples. So he says in verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. Now, what you need to understand is that that was a very visceral example in the Roman, in the times of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had the first, and up until the last 200 years, the only standing army, governmentally paid standing army ever, all right? Probably over 100,000 workers or 100,000 soldiers paid by the Roman government. Listen to a fascinating book on the fall of the Roman Empire, and one of the primary things it's attributed to is not being able to pay the soldiers. So because they weren't making enough money to pay the soldiers, the soldiers then kept picking other emperors who would pay them. They would depose the one, put in the next. That guy couldn't pay him either. This happened over and over and brought a, a kind of disarray to the Roman Empire that blew it apart. So getting paid as a soldier was a big deal, but he didn't pay his own way. He didn't get his own kit and buy his own sword. The government paid all of that. It was a pretty good job, except that you could get killed every other day. All right? to be paid as a Roman soldier, and to deal with that payment. So he's saying, look, it's just obvious. Look around at the soldiers. They're all paid, and they don't have to then make their own money. Additionally, then, the other 
two other occupations that it would have been very obvious, farmers get paid from the produce. It's like saying a computer programmer gets paid from the programs he puts out. Right? If you, it says, he who plants a vineyard, does he not eat the fruit of it? I mean, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit? doesn't even make any sense. If I plant the grapes, I eat the grapes. And I get the benefit from the wine I make from that. Deuteronomy 26, this is in fact even a biblical principle. Who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? That wouldn't even make any sense. I don't plant the vineyard and someone else comes in and says, hey, that's all mine. You don't deserve to get any crops from that. Of course, that makes sense. And then the third occupation, which would have been well known, who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock, a shepherd, gets paid. Now, I, I, was, I, uh, I was corrected in the last service. Where I was like, okay, the milk of the flock, uh, probably, he might, probably was referring to his flocks of goats because you often use goat's milk. And I had, I had someone immediately say, hey, sheep have milk too. I know that. But I have never, ever heard of people drinking sheep's milk. Guess what? It's a thing. You might have already known that. It's supposed to be super healthy milk. So I guess it could, be, it could be sheep or goats. You milk them both. You can drink their milk. I don't think I'd recommend either one, but that's what happened, and that's where they made their money. Sheep's, sheep's milk. I can't even hardly say that. Goat's milk, both. All right? So, but the idea is clear. If you're a shepherd, and you got the flock, and you milk the goats or the sheep, you can have the milk. Who wouldn't do that? In fact, that's why you do it. Of course, this is, you know, that, that's striking really closely home metaphorically because Paul was a shepherd. So who wouldn't receive the benefit of that? And he'll use that illustration later. But so look, this just makes sense. The law of wages says that when you work, you are to receive wages for what you do. Guys, God built that. That's some weird, you know, uh, American capitalistic idea that when you work, you get wages back from that. That's built into the way that God designed society, right? And even spiritual things. When you work, you get back payment, right? That's what happens. So these are principles simply from example, then principles see here of wages, and then next he has principles from the law. Because now he's going to move, they might say, okay, Paul, all right, that's just, those are natural principles. We're spiritual. That's what they would have been saying. We only listen to the Bible, right? Well, guess what? The Bible says this too. Again, don't mess with Paul when it comes to argumentation. He's leaving no bases uncovered here. So next he moves to principles from the law. So in case they were thinking that it was just his human speech or human reasoning, now look down in verse 8. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? That's just some, you know, sociological principle. You read somebody's economics book and that's how that works. No. Because are not these things in the law? In fact... It is written, verse 9, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So this is principles from the law, and he brings up an Old Testament law from Deuteronomy 25, 4, about the fact that you can't muzzle an ox while he's threshing. And you're like, what? I mean, most of you have never seen an ox threshing. You never will. Right? It sounds like it's in its death throes, but that's not what it means. An ox threshing means it's, it's walking around either dragging an implement or with its hooves or whatever. It's walking around crushing the grain so that the seed, the necessary useful seed, is separated out from the chaff. That's how they received, they were able to make food, make, make bread and other things. And when, you, when the ox would be used to work, there were some masters or, or some farmers who would keep the oxen from eating. Because the oxen would naturally bend down to eat some of that grain that they were crushing. And what the farmers would do is they would muzzle the ox so that it couldn't eat. 
And then they would just, they would, they would pull the ox when it was all done. They would pull it out, maybe give it some food then. But they were essentially starving the ox while it was working. It's like you're out on your 20-mile run and you don't get to eat anything. Right? Well, you might survive, but you're not going to thrive. That's not the purpose of that. Well, these oxen, they're just animals. He says, look, in the law it says, don't muzzle them. Let them eat while they're working. They deserve to receive wages for the work that they do. Even oxen, don't muzzle them. But then you might be thinking, well, that's just oxen. And of course, in Corinth, they'd be going, Paul, why why do you use that example? Again, we're more spiritual than you. So that just has to do with oxen, not people. Well, Paul says this, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Now, don't get, don't, there's been, (laughs) there have been literally books written on how this renovates hermeneutics, that now we don't believe in Old Testament laws or principles by their just natural fundamental principles. We spiritualize them all. Look next. Or is he speaking all together for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written. See, Paul doesn't view the Old Testament as, as you know, those things that actually happened. He just wants to spiritualize the principle. Absolutely not. All Paul is doing here is he's taking a an application of the underlying principle of the law that was really for the ox. They really were not supposed to muzzle the ox while it threshed out the grain. He's saying there's a bigger principle there. And oh, people are more important than oxen. And oh, the principle is actually all about people. In taking care of your oxen, you are really being given an example of how you ought to care for people. This is so important for us, by the way. I obey the law and I harm people. It's really a good word to our society that treats animals better than people. People are more important always. Is he not speaking altogether of us? It's not saying that he isn't speaking about oxen in the Old Testament. The bigger picture of principle is that people matter more and the underlying principle as it applies to people is more important than the ox. You may go, well, how do you know that? How about Matthew 6, 26? Jesus says, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, are you not worth more than they? It's exactly what Paul is saying. Oxen are important, but all together, this is for you. The principle is for people, they're more important. And the principle is when they work, you pay them. And if they're working full-time for the gospel, you pay them. They deserve the payment that you would give. It's in the law, it's written, that's the principle Right? End of story, except he gives one more law principle. Right? We'll call this actually here the principle of sowing and reaping. Right? Oh, yeah, so we'll do sowing and reaping. But before we leave that, right, he, he makes the spiritual principle, verse 10. For our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If you're a, if you're a, a person and you're doing work for the gospel, you ought to do that in light of the benefit that you will receive. Don't withhold from them the wages of their work because he goes back to the idea of a farmer past simply the oxen. If a farmer were threshing himself, right, or he were plowing, and the guy finishes plowing up the fields to have the produce, and then he asks for his payment, you say, no, you can't have that. Right? You plowed up the field, you threshed all the stuff, now moving to people, but you don't get any of it. Well, that would be totally against what they were threshing and plowing for. They wanted to be able to receive the crops. They were threshing in hope of what they received. The gospel worker works in hope of what he will receive, just as the oxen should be working in one sense, is working for the wages he receives. By the way, Martin Luther had a great point here. He says, of course, the underlying principle is for people because oxen can't read. All right. Now he's going to move to, that's Martin Luther at his best. Well, 
It's good. Principle of spiritual sowing and reaping. So now he's going to move to a very interesting principle because he might be saying, okay, maybe he is only talking about just physical things. Notice verse 11, because there you have, you know, your thresher is threshing something physical. The ox is trampling something physical. How do we get this idea that if you do spiritual work, you ought to receive benefit? Well, Paul comes after that. That's next. Sowing and reaping applies to spiritual things and material things. Hear me carefully, mixed together because there is no such thing as purely material and purely spiritual. They're always together right? Material and spiritual. He says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Some people are like, that's spiritual work, so I'll, I'll pray for you. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my good feelings and my good wishes. I'll give you spiritual return for your spiritual work. Paul says, no, no, no. If we, re- if, we, if we sowed spiritual things, the, the benefits and blessings of knowing Christ, of repentance, of all the spiritual gifts and the blessings that brings, then that also deserves back. Sowing and reaping. You sow, you reap. If I sowed that, it deserves back material benefit. Why? Because in this case, there was no other way to get it. If you're working full time, you don't get that material benefit. So it has to come from somewhere and it is earned even with the spiritual work being done. So don't over-spiritualize stuff. It's all spiritual work, but it has to do also with material things, and it's worthwhile to get them back. Fascinating, Romans 15, 27, Paul is taking up a, an offering for the church in Jerusalem, and it seems like maybe there were some people who were grumbling about, well, why are we, the Gentile churches, giving money to Jewish churches in Jerusalem? Can't, why can't they get their own money, have their own offering? They were having a famine at the time. Paul says this, and he's talking about here the people who were pleased to do this, not the complainers. But he says, you were pleased, they were pleased to do so. They are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. That's fascinating. I'm not going to break up my dispensational sermon this morning, but I could. Because you have the Jewish churches and the Gentiles going, hey, we're, out, we're equal parts in the body of Christ, right? Why should we be helping them? Paul says, no, you, don't, you misunderstand. They're first. You're getting the overflow of their spiritual benefit. You owe them materially. Now, I'm not making an argument for sending money to the nation of Israel currently. I'm not doing that. I am telling you, however, that there is an indebtedness of Gentiles, us as Gentiles, to the overflow and the benefits we have received from God's ethnic people, and we should never forget it. Right? That's what Paul says in Romans 15. He doesn't say that directly here. But when you sow spiritually to someone, you have the right and the expectation that you would receive materially from them. He says, by the way, he's going to just give an allusion to what we'll talk about next week. He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right. We endure all things so that we will not cause hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Here, he's giving foreshadowing to the argument we'll talk about next week, beginning in verse 15, where he says, look, yeah, we deserve it, but we're not taking it because if we took it in our case here in Corinth, if we took the money, says Paul, we would actually be hindering the gospel. So that's when a gospel minister will say, I'm not going to receive payment if it would be something that would actually harm the gospel, which indicates what? That that gospel minister is not greedy for money. You would never give a cent, not a single red cent to a gospel minister who's greedy because they will misuse and abuse that money. They deserve nothing because their ministry is insincere. They're not true gospel workers if they're greedy for money money. That's really important. It's next week mostly, but he alludes to it here. Right in the middle, he's like, all these examples, even to spiritual sowing and material reaping, why aren't you doing it, Paul? Because it would hinder the gospel. I'm going to endure all the things necessary to not have that benefit 
Because here in Corinth, it would cause a problem for the gospel. That's always the issue. Not his own personal life, not how much he's making, not the ease of his living. That does not matter to the gospel minister. The only thing that matters is whether the gospel will be hindered. That dictates everything he does when it comes to money. Don't hire a gospel minister that isn't like that. Don't send out a missionary that won't do that, ever. Recall them from the field when they show that or remove them from the pulpit if they are that, always, because you are wasting your money. It's, a, it's an abomination to give money to those who would use it for their own gain in that sense. Not their own gain and they have food and clothing and get to go to Dollywood, all right? But they're greedy for what they have or get to go to Israel, as in my case. But they're greedy for this. And they live their lives based on what they make, not on the gospel. All right, last principle here, the principle of religious service, and then we need to hurry to the end for today. Principle of religious service, he says, verse 14, uh, verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? Those who attend regularly to the altar have their share in the altar. Now, I think this begins in the idea that Judaism still existed, right? So you have Christianity, but still there were people who were ministering in the temple. It hadn't been destroyed yet. Right? But also, I think it reflects all the temple worship going on in Corinth. Every temple has priests. All those priests are getting what? Paid from their temple work. It's just as simple as that. All the way back to the food. If they sacrifice stuff on the altar, what do they get? The food from the altar. But that wasn't just pagans. There was a whole tribe in Israel that didn't get paid. They didn't get any land. They didn't receive direct wages. They received the benefits of their priestly service. So when they sacrificed the food, they got to eat it. They were, they, they were given certain lands and towns, and then, but their, their food, all the things they had, their, even their vestments in many ways, were supplied by others. So you know, this is just a basic principle of religious service. When you serve religiously, you get paid for that. If you're an Israelite priest, if you're now these pagan priests, you still get paid for these things. If you attend regularly to the altar, then you have your share from the altar. And then lastly, he makes the gospel principle clear. Right? In verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Oh, by the way, final argument, all right, end of story, total mic drop. He says, Jesus commanded this. That's what he said, it means when he says the Lord. And where did he do that? How about Matthew 10.10? 10? Uh, bag for your inquiries. He sends the disciples out on their, that first little missionary journey there. Even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker, spiritual worker in this case, is worthy of his wages. Luke 10, 7. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. So if they were arguing, it's all these, well, what about this religious stuff? What about the Old Testament? What about the example? What about these other people? That doesn't apply. Jesus said so. Done. He said, it says ought. This is very strong. Those who proclaim the gospel, right? He directed those who proclaim the gospel to get the living from the gospel. This was a command. Now, that's a powerful thing for Paul to say because he's about to say, I don't do that. It's going to have to be a pretty strong reason why we're, God directs in this way that the apostle Paul would say, all right, that's something that I can actually be free not to do. We'll talk about that next week. But as we finish this out, I, just, I do want to show you verse 15. Paul says, again, in case you thought I was angling for my rays or maybe the apostle Paul is angling for his rays. What does he say here? I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. It would be better for me to die than if many, any man make my boast an empty one. If anyone would say, because I'm taking money, that I'm greedy for money, Paul says, I'd rather die. I will not take a cent, because that's what they were saying. Conversely in Corinth, 
If you don't take it, you're not an apostle. If you do take it, you're greedy. They were getting him, coming, and going. He says, the better way for this is I'll make the defense of why I should get it and not get it because that will be the best way to prove I'm not greedy and I would rather die. I mean, imagine saying that to our health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. Imagine one of them getting him and say, I would rather die than for someone to think I'm greedy. They would have to drop over debt because it's not true. So guys, as we consider the nature of this really for this morning, we didn't get, that's really next week largely. I just want to remind you of something. The gospel message of life in Christ, eternal life and deliverance from sin is the most important message in the universe. Any amount of money spent to have that go forward is worth it. The money you're giving here to the church Right? It's also why we're incredibly careful, and this was also a bit for next week, to that those who are paid in a full-time manner, that they're carefully vetted, carefully trained. It's only a very few in any given church and in society as a whole. It's only a very few that are gifted and presented to be in what we call full-time ministry. Only very few. So that's not most everyone. But the ones that are have to be properly prepared and properly character-worthy of it, and so we're very careful of it. But again, just back to all what you are giving, the money you give to support our missionaries, most of them full-time workers where they are, to support the pastors of this church who are paid full-time, to support those who go out and help them because it's all worth it. Well done. You couldn't spend your money on anything better and it has nothing to do with the fact that it comes, some of it, to me. It is only because it's a worthwhile endeavor that you're about and you have been generous. This church at this time, and really all the time that I've been here, has overflowed with the necessary resources. You have seen the value of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. This is the deserved nature of it. When you pour out to see that the gospel work is done, it is worth all the material resources that are responsibly to be applied to it. Let us as a church continue to faithfully give of the abundance of what God has given to us so that his work will go forward with power. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the power and importance of the gospel message. And Lord, I pray that we would use our resources, all those things that you have so graciously given to us that simply are an offering back to you from your own hand. We own nothing. Father, I pray that we would not get confused, that we would not use the idols of our own hearts and the idols of our society to spend our money on that we would spend the resources you've given us that the gospel message would go forward. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.